Before we start reading verse 1, let me cite some important dates we need to be aware of. Now, some of this we should remember from our Daniel series. 931 B.C. 931 B.C., the ancient United Kingdom of Israel that had consisted of 12 original tribes was divided into two distinct parts, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Ten of those 12 tribes migrated into the north and continued to be known as Israel. Its capital was Samaria. In 722 B.C., the armies from the Assyrian Empire captured the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom ceased to exist after that. The two smaller tribes, Benjamin and Judah, remained in the south and formed a southern kingdom called Judah. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. This map shows both kingdoms, the northern kingdom during the time of its existence, and then Judah, the southern kingdom, after that. Most of the book of Nehemiah focuses on this southern kingdom, Judah, and on Jerusalem itself. Remember, the Babylonian captivity transpired in three distinct stages. In 605 B.C., there was the first Babylonian invasion. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was head of that ancient empire. His armies besieged or surrounded Jerusalem. Judah's king at that time was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim cooperated with Nebuchadnezzar, so there wasn't mass destruction, there wasn't casualties. Nebuchadnezzar, though, was permitted to confiscate some of the sacred vessels in the Jerusalem temple and bring captive some of Jerusalem's finest men to serve him in Babylon. Remember, Daniel and his three friends were part of that first deportation from Jerusalem to Babylonia. In 597 BC, there was the second Babylonian invasion. Nebuchadnezzar's armies invaded Jerusalem and this time captured 10,000 Jerusalem people and brought them as slaves to Babylonia. In 586 BC, there was a third Babylonian invasion. Nebuchadnezzar once more invaded Jerusalem and this time left it in absolute ruins. He destroyed the original Solomon's temple. He destroyed the houses uh, and the wall around Jerusalem. In addition, some of the Jewish population were executed. That invasion ended Judah's formal existence until after the Babylonian captivity had ended. And we discussed those three invasion stages in our Daniel series. Thousands of Jerusalem inhabitants were executed and thousands more were brought as captives into Babylon. Then according to Daniel 5, we read the ancient Medes and Persians, a larger empire, conquered the Babylonians, and then once in charge, the Media Persian Empire started giving some of the captured Jewish people, we call them exiles, Jewish exiles had been captured, brought to Babylonia, started giving them permission to return to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, just as the Babylonian captivity transpired over three distinct stages, the return of those Jewish exiles from Babylonia to Jerusalem and Judah also transpired over three distinct stages. Notice, in 536 B.C., there was a return under Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's name meant planted in Babylon. So Zerubbabel was someone actually born in Babylonian 
to parents who had been taken captive there. And he was born during that Babylonian captivity. He was also a descendant from David and an ancestor to Jesus. Zerubbabel received permission to bring 42,360 Jewish exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the Jerusalem temple. That project was finished in 516 BC, although it was smaller in size and less magnificent than Solomon's original temple. And that did prove to be problematic. In 458 BC, there was a second return from Babylonia to Judah and Jerusalem under Ezra the scribe. Ezra was considered an authority on the Hebrew Torah. The Torah or Pentateuch were the first five books of the Old Testament. Ezra brought a second group of Jewish exiles to Jerusalem and those people brought about a spiritual restoration to the people already there. In 445 BC there was a third return under Nehemiah. We're going to see that Nehemiah received permission from King Artaxerxes to return to Jerusalem with another group of Jewish exiles in order to rebuild Jerusalem's broken down walls and burned gates. So the focus in this book of Nehemiah is on this third return to Jerusalem. Let's start reading at Nehemiah 1 and verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. This man named Hakaliah was Nehemiah's father. It came to pass in the month of Kislev. The month of Kislev corresponds to our December. It came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. The 20th year was 445 B.C. This is almost four and a half centuries before Christ. Now remember, Nehemiah is going to be part of this third stage of return of exiles to Jerusalem. Actually, he's head of that return. So this was 445 B.C. In the month of Kislev, he said, As I was in Shushan... In the citadel. Um, citadel was a fortified portion of a city, a castle, a palace, or a fortress, and so he was there. Shushan was the capital of this enormous ancient empire called the Media Persian Empire. Shushan was as Moscow would be to Russia or as Washington, D.C. is to the United States. Shushan acted as the governmental headquarters for this ancient empire of the Medes and Persians. Shushan still exists, although it is in ruins, and it is located about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf in what, is what we now know as Iran. So Nehemiah was sitting there in December 445 B.C. He was in Shushan the capital of the media Persian Empire. And this wasn't going to be a good day for Nehemiah. Not at all. Someone said, we know it's going to be a bad day when our income tax refund, tax refund check bounces. We know it's going to be a bad day when we wake up and our braces are stuck together. We know it's going to be a bad day when we arrive at work and the boss says, don't bother taking off your coat. We know it's going to be a bad day when we wake up face down on the pavement. We know it's going to be a bad day when our horn gets stuck as we're following a motorcycle gang. We know it's going to be a bad day when we call suicide prevention and we're put on hold. We know it's going to be a bad day, this is my favorite, when our birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles. 
we don't have to read long into this passage before we just sense that this was not going to be a good day for Nehemiah. This was going to be an extremely bad day. He was going to get some bad news. Notice verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brethren, this is probably his biological brother, Hanani, came with men from Judah. Now remember, Judah was that southern kingdom that had been devastated. So his brother, Hanani, and some friends of his came from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. This is the situation. Nehemiah is sitting there, probably in the palace at Shushan, Hanani, his brother, came to see him. He had some friends with him uh, who had come from what remained of the southern kingdom of Judah. Nehemiah asked them two questions. One, how were the people in Jerusalem? How were the people? Second, he asked, how was Jerusalem itself? How was it? What condition was it in? Now, first, Nehemiah asked about those Jewish people at Jerusalem that had remained there in Judah throughout the entire period of Babylonian captivity because those people had managed to escape the Babylonian deportations. Those people weren't captured and weren't brought to Babylon, so they remained there. And during that time, those people had children, so there was a sizable population of those people that never left the region of Judah and Jerusalem. Then Nehemiah we assume, ask about the Jewish people that had been captured earlier and then brought to Babylon as exiles and then um, survived that Babylonian captivity and then had been, you know, released and came back in one of the returns. Also, children born to those exiles in captivity in Babylon are also part of those returns. Altogether, those people were giving permission to return to Jerusalem. Remember, there were two stages of returns before this. There was the return under Zerubbabel, a second return under Ezra. That means there were thousands of Jewish people that had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, in addition to the ones that never left because they managed to escape the captivity. So Nehemiah's first question to Hanani was, how were these people at Jerusalem doing? What was their state of being? Were the people in good health? Were the people depressed? Or were the people optimistic? And on and on and on. So why was that Nehemiah's first question? To inquire about the condition of the people. Because people matter most. That's the reason. There's a second question though. Nehemiah wanted to know about Jerusalem itself. It is said that a true Jew never, ever forgets Jerusalem. Ever. Nehemiah wanted to know what kind of condition Jerusalem itself was in. Was it still in ruins? Was there still this massive devastation? Or had there been some reconstruction? We know the temple had been restored. But he wanted to know about the rest of it. So, once more, the two questions were, how were the people in Jerusalem doing? And how was Jerusalem itself? And Hanani and his friends answered him in verse 3. Notice, they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province, are there in great distress. Distress means affliction or trouble. These people are in trouble. And reproach. Some versions translate this word that is here, translated as reproach, as disgrace. Meaning the people were existing in a 
disgraceful state. It was a miserable, terrible state. This is what happened. After the Babylonians brought the Jewish people from Jerusalem into captivity in Babylon, numbers of pagan Gentile peoples started migrating in and around Jerusalem. I mean, even though the area was in ruins, these people were moving in, establishing residences in and around these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. And remember, there were still Jewish people there that escaped the Babylonians. And there were still more Jewish people coming from Babylonia into Jerusalem after being released from that captivity. The problem was these pagan non-Gentiles, non-Jews, these Gentiles were harassing the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These Gentiles were ridiculing and mocking the Jewish people. So the answer to Nehemiah's first question was that the people at Jerusalem were under enormous dis- distress, persecution, and trouble, terrible times. And then notice the answer to Nehemiah's second question mentioned at the end of verse 3. Notice, the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Notice, the wall around Jerusalem was broken down and and just just completely, utterly destroyed and its gates were burned with fire. Hanani and his friends answered Nehemiah like this, said, Nehemiah, I am so sorry. I have to tell you this, but the wall's been completely torn down. It's broken down. And the gates in the wall, those magnificent gates, have been burned, no longer exist. So in an actual structural sense, Jerusalem was in terrible condition. Jerusalem was in ruins. This wall was in absolute shambles. This was a sad, sad day for Nehemiah. His people were being harassed, and the wall of the city he loved so much, was in shambles. Verse 4, so it was when I, Nehemiah, heard these words that I sat down and wept. Nehemiah heard what Hanani and his friends had said, and he, this was his reaction to that announcement. He just sat down and cried. Bob Pierce, founder of World Vision, said that our hearts ought to be broken with the things that break God's heart. And Nehemiah's heart was broken. God's people were in trouble. And God's city, the wall was in shambles. Notice verse 4 continues. And I mourned for many days, Nehemiah said. I was fasting, meaning after this announcement, he lost his appetite, he wasn't able to eat, so essentially he was fasting. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The statement is made that Nehemiah wept and mourned and fasted and prayed for many days. How long is many days? According to Nehemiah 1, verse 1 we just read, he started doing that in the month of Kislev. And according to Nehemiah 2, verse 1, He was still sad, still grieving, still mourning, and it was the month of Nisan. So from these two Persian months that are mentioned here, we are able to deduct that Nehemiah, after hearing this announcement, has been mourning and grieving for almost four months. Four months. Nehemiah was sad, extremely sad. Let's use the word sad, spelled S-A-D, as an acronym to describe Nehemiah. The letter S means that he was sensitive. Nehemiah was sensitive to seeing and sensing a need. Please understand something. This wasn't something Nehemiah was forced to do. 
Nehemiah had it made. He was at the top of his professional career. He had the second best position in the empire. He had an outstanding salary and benefits and job security. The problems in Jerusalem, some 800 miles away, weren't affecting his status in the empire. Actually, he'd never seen Jerusalem. Remember, he was born to parents that had been brought there as captives, exiles. He'd been born during the Babylonian captivity. He'd never left Babylon at this juncture. So if he never did anything about Jerusalem's tragic situation, it wasn't going to affect him. But he was still sensitive to those there that were less fortunate than himself. It bothered him. It grieved him. caused him to mourn. Leaders are sensitive to the needs of people. And all of us should be. Nehemiah was sensitive enough to recognize that there was a legitimate need in Jerusalem. He had heard this discouraging announcement. And in an instant, he recognized that this was a serious need. The wall around Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt. And the reason was, don't miss this, the reason was that a fortified wall protected the Jewish people on the inside. If there were no wall, then the people were left unprotected. Those pagan Gentiles, hostile to Israelites, were, you know, were accessible to them. So Nehemiah understood that someone needed to rebuild that wall. Now, uh, how, the, how were the people going to survive all of this harassment and persecution from those Gentiles on the outside of Jerusalem if there were no fortification around them to protect them? Nehemiah was sensitive to human needs. I didn't want to mention this, but this is so blatant and obvious. Nehemiah, in wanting to rebuild this wall, understood what our own president doesn't understand. One of Mr. Biden's first executive actions after becoming president was to stop the construction of the U.S. border wall that the previous administration had been erecting. So there are now more than $100 million of unused southern border wall materials that are just there being unused. Some of them are rusting. In particular, the president canceled border wall contracts in two areas of high illegal immigration crossings, the Laredo and the Rio Grande Valley sectors. That's where most illegal crossings occur. As a result of that stoppage of that wall, the Border Patrol has apprehended a record, record 1.74 million illegal immigrants as of September. And estimates are between 100,000 and 300,000 more illegals have also crossed the border without being caught. Now, the president, and he boasted, we're not going to build another foot of that wall. He was just adamant the wall construction had to stop. The president argues that walls don't work. Walls just don't work. But if he actually believes that, then why would he want... A wall-like security barrier erected around his vacation home. We just read from the Washington Examiner that President Biden is scheduled to have a $457,000, that's almost a half a million dollar, taxpayer-funded fence-like wall uh, around his $2.7 million summer home. 
Why? Because he knows, intrinsically, he knows walls do work. It's a protective measure. What's the problem? The problem is he's an elitist, and elitists are hypocritical. He doesn't want southern border a wall of protection and security around our nation, but he wants his own personal security. Even this past month, his former boss, President Obama, said that the U.S. having open borders, and essentially we have open borders, is, quote, an unsustainable idea. Well, duh. Of course it is. Mr. Biden wants a wall to protect him, but he doesn't want a wall to protect us, meaning he is insensitive, he's not sensitive to the needs of the people of this nation. Nehemiah understood fully what the President of the United States doesn't. Someone should give him a Bible. Give him a Bible and say, listen, Mr. President, this is a Bible. I'm sure you've seen one. I think you put your hand on one at the inauguration. This is a Bible. Now, I know you don't really know what all's in here. I mean, during the campaign, you did say that uh, you called the psalmist the palmist. So I don't think you have a clue, but, but it's okay. But there's a book in the Old Testament you really should read. It's called Nehemiah. It's, it's about building a wall around Jerusalem to protect God's people. It's what God wanted, and Nehemiah agreed to do it. Really, you should read it because it's a really good idea. I'm sure none of his advisors would ever recommend such thing. Nehemiah was sensitive to needs. Our president isn't. Claims he is, but he isn't. Some people, it isn't as easy as it sounds to sense legitimate problems and recognize needs. Some people, for some strange reason, are oblivious to needs. Some marriage partners are blind to the needs of their mates. I've, I've counseled uh, people that, uh, gentlemen said, my wife left, I had no idea what happened. It just, I came home, she's gone. It just insensitive to the needs. There were needs there. There were signs there. Some parents are blind to the needs of their children. Some pastors are blind to the needs of their congregation. I, met a, I read about a man that walked into a psychiatrist's office. Uh, he was different. He had put a half a cantaloupe on his head for a hat. And he had around each ear, he had wrapped a strip of bacon. So he had this hat, cantaloupe, and bacon on his ears. He walked into that office in that strange condition. The, the psychiatrist sat there in the chair. He rubbed his hands together in anticipation, and he said to himself, okay, I got a really good one this time. And this man sat down and said to the psychiatrist, Doc, I am here to talk to you about my brother. I think he has a real problem. This man had a need, a definite need, and he couldn't see his own need. There are people like that. Some people are insensitive to their own personal needs and to the needs all around them. As a first semester freshman in college, and I have an undergraduate degree in engineering, I had a strange physics professor. He just happened to be a legitimate bona fide genius. He had a straight 4.0 throughout graduate school. He had worked for a NASA space center as a scientist. He had physics coming out his ears. He taught physics to incoming freshman engineering students. This is the basic stuff. And he used a different technique in his teaching. He stood at the blackboard. Now, if you're under 40, you don't know what one is, but it's a black board and you write with chalk on it. He stood at the blackboard for 45, 50 solid minutes with his back to us, which was probably his better sight. But he stood there with his back to the class and he would stand there and just go on and on, writing equation after equation after equation after equation onto the blackboard. I'm a freshman and he's doing differential equations, which at that point we did not understand. I didn't have 
differential equations till the second semester. And we're sitting there saying to one another, what is this man doing? This is nuts. If he ever turned around, if he ever did face our class, and if we were courageous enough to raise our hand and ask a question like, Prof, I don't understand this. Please, could you go through that again? I just don't get it. If we did that, he would embarrass us and insult us for asking such a, in his estimation, such a dumb question. In his mind, we should know all this stuff already. He was insensitive to his students' need to understand the material he was presenting. He didn't understand the axiom that if the student wants to learn, if the student has a sincere desire to learn, and if the student hasn't learned, then the teacher hasn't taught. None of us benefited from his class. And there were some smart guys in there. But his teaching was so bad he had to grave on a gigantic curve or else we would have all flunked. He wasn't sensitive to our need to understand the material he was teaching, which is the reason his tenure there as a professor lasted just two semesters. Uh, His students' frustrations forced him to resign his teaching position, and he went back into research and development where he should have been. Do we realize that almost every miracle in Scripture originated because of a need? Example, blind Barnabas, sitting on the roadside, had a need. He was blind, so Jesus met his need and gave him his sight. 5,000 men plus women and children had a need for food. So Jesus multiplied his small boy's lunch consisting of five loaves and two small fishes and fed them all. Guests at a wedding reception in Canaan had a need, needed more wine. So Jesus turned water into wine, his first miracle, and on and on and on. Biblical miracles stemmed from human needs. And one reason we aren't seeing more of the miraculous could be because we aren't sensitive enough to the severity of human needs. Nehemiah was. Nehemiah heard this announcement, this report from Jerusalem about his people being harassed and how the Jerusalem wall was in shambles that left his people vulnerable to their enemies. And he sensed there was a desperate need for someone to rebuild this wall and reestablish life for the people in Jerusalem. As a precaution, let me mention three don'ts in sensing and seeing human needs. Three don'ts. One, don't be preoccupied in seeing needs. We are to sense needs and see needs, but don't be preoccupied in doing that. In being sensitive to needs, we should be careful not to have a preoccupation for seeing needs. Problems are some, are all that some people are able to see. I mean, to the gym, the glass is never, ever half full. It's always half empty. I quoted in first service from an esteemed uh, retired federal judge. And this judge said, quote, I am a conservative judge, which means I spend my time thinking about solution to social problems in contrast to my liberal colleagues who spend their time thinking of new ones. How true was that? The progressive left doesn't solve problems. Progressives look for more problems And if there are none to be found, then progressives create some problems. This is a more bizarre example of that, but it it illustrates that. Uh, PETA, uh, representing people for the ethical treatment of animals, um, PETA is a serious part of the progressive left. There's no question. And because of that, it has recently created a problem that did not exist before now. 
the World Series is happening. I haven't watched a single inning. I believe Atlanta Braves are up three games to one over Houston, and that's fine. I'm just not into it, don't have time. But the World Series is on, and so PETA took this opportunity in the middle of the series to call on Major League Baseball to remove the, quote, outdated and offensive name of the bullpen to remove that name and use something more animal-friendly. Because as we all know, animals are serious baseball enthusiasts, and bulls in particular are, are being offended. Now, for those that don't understand the game, the bullpen is a location just off the outfield where relief pitchers warm up just before coming onto the field and into the game. I mean, the starting pitcher might have gone five innings, six innings, and, and so someone is out there warming up and he comes in and he pitches for an inning or two or whatever. And, and that's the bullpen where that happens. PETA argues that that term bullpen originated as the pen where terrified bulls were held before being slaughtered. And so the suggestion is to rename the bullpen, get this, rename the bullpen to the arm barn. The arm barn. Brilliant. Now actually historians argue that the word bull in bullpen has never been used in a literal sense. One suggestion, according to baseball historian Paul Dixon, is that ballparks at the beginning of the 20th century had a large Bull Durham tobacco sign. It was a giant bull-shaped billboard attached to the outfield, advertising tobacco. Uh, it was attached to the fence. And all the games at that time were day games. Um, Lighting wasn't sophisticated enough to play night games, so there were no night games, so everybody played in the day. And so warm-up pitchers would often, in mid-afternoon, find themselves in that area, warming up in the shadow of that bull-shaped billboard advertising tobacco. And over time, that area became known as the bullpen. Now, it's debatable. Um, there are other suggestions as to the origin of that word, but none of them, none of them reference to pen, an actual pen where actual bulls were kept. Peter needs to think through these things. Peter needs to be more consistent because what is the word we use to describe the stick we hit the ball with? That word is bat. Bats are animals. So is that the next word to be banned from baseball? People, do you understand our society has lost its stinking mind? It's crazy. Now, the point is, there was a point to that. The point is, the bullpen was never ever a problem until PETA made it a problem. Again, don't be preoccupied in seeing problems. Hang on, I've got kind of my sheet here. J. Oswald Sanders authored a book called Spiritual Leadership. In that publication, he said, vision is optimistic in orientation. Optimistic. Someone said an optimist is someone that falls off an eight-story building and after seven stories says, so far, so good. <laughs> no, that person is not an optimist. He's basically delusional. 
But I do agree vision is optimistic in orientation. Sanders continues, no pessimist has ever made a great leader. And the reason is the pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, whereas the optimist sees an opportunity in every difficulty. The pessimist has always seen difficulties before he sees the possibilities, and he tends to hold back the visionary person, whose desire it is to push ahead. The person who sees the difficulties so clearly that he does not discern the possibilities cannot inspire a vision in others. It's similar to Thomas Harding, the poet. He commented about a man he knew that would go into the fields of the countryside during the springtime, but he never fully enjoyed his walks through the countryside because in going out into the fields, he would never be able to to notice and fully appreciate how beautiful the flowers were because he was always watching out for cow pies. His focus was on cow pies. He didn't want to step in one. So he never really fully appreciated the beautiful flowers. And there are people so pessimistic that they aren't able to see anything other than the negative. There are three groups of people. The plus-plus person... This plus-plus person says, I can do it, and you can do it, so let's get it done. Then there's the plus-minus person. This plus-minus person says, I can do it, and you can't do it, so get out of my way and let me do it. Then there's the minus-minus person. The minus-minus person said, I can't do it, and you can't do it, so who brought it up anyway? I want to be a plus-plus person. Sometimes it's difficult. But I want to be more a more optimistic, positive person. But not like the teenager who came home from school one afternoon. He said, Dad, I think I flunked an algebra test. His dad said, Son, don't say that. That sounds so negative. Son, you need to be more positive. He said, All right, Dad, I'm positive I flunked an algebra test. If we reduce this particular point, subpoint, down to just one word, it would be balance. We want to be balanced. We don't want to ignore problems because problems do exist. We don't want to pretend problems don't exist. That's not reality. But neither are we to be so problematic in our perspective that we create a negative and pessimistic environment. Second, don't. Don't misjudge the need. Don't misjudge the need itself. Now, this statement comes in two parts. Don't underestimate the need, and don't exaggerate or overestimate the need. Don't underestimate the need, such as, hey, I'm not obese, so I don't need to lose weight. Sure, Mom, I'm not getting A's and B's, but I'm not flunking either. I realize I don't exercise, but I feel fine, so it's not a big deal. I know I don't attend church as often as I should, but I have a lot going on. That's underestimating the seriousness of a personal need someone has. Then we can overestimate the need. We can blow something all out of proportion. Let me share a humorous and outrageous example of an exaggerated need. There is a magazine of science humor called the Journal of Irreproducible Results. The Journal of Irreproducible Results. It started in Israel in 1955. It was established by two Israeli scientists who wanted a humor magazine about science for scientists. It consists of a mixture of jokes, satire of scientific practice, science cartoons and discussion of real research, 
that is actually humorous. Most articles are parodies written in technical, scientific language, complete with diagrams, tables, formulas, mathematical calculations, and nonsensical conclusions. Far-reaching conclusions uh, extrapolated from limited data are a favorite target of this journal. This is one of my favorites. It's called the National Geographic Doomsday Machine. In this article, Dr. George H. Cobb, the author, pointed out that more than 6.8 million issues of the National Geographic, each weighing two pounds apiece, are sent to subscribers each month. He argues it is estimated, though, that not a single copy of National Geographic has ever been thrown away since publication began 133 years ago. It seems that people that subscribe to National Geographic never throw them away. Instead, copies are accumulating in stacks, in basements, attics, private and public institutions of learning, the Library of Congress, the Smithsonian Institute, Goodwill, and the Salvation Army, and on and on and on. So much so, the accumulation of National Geographic magazines is so sizable that soon, according to this article, the geological substructure of our nation will no longer be able to support the load of National Geographic magazines. Cobb predicted some subsistence is going to occur. Rock formations will compress, then become plastic, and then begin to liquefy and flow. Gigantic faults in the earth will appear, and the entire continent will begin to sink and be inundated by the seas. The increased earthquake activity in California that has already occurred, the magazine said, has been triggered by California's increasing population and the subsequent increase in National Geographic subscriptions. Cobb concluded his article in calling for nothing less than the immediate stoppage of the publication of National Geographic through congressional action or through presidential edict, if necessary. Now that's crazy, but that's an example of someone's gross exploitation and exaggeration. And we've all done something similar, not on that scale. We're susceptible to that. We need to be careful not to exaggerate needs and problems. Understand something. No matter how significant our need seems or how significant and sizable our problem is, I promise someone else has a more serious need and a more sizable problem than we have. And for those men that attended Men's Breakfast, go online if you have it. Go under other videos and watch Joe Taylor's presentation and you will have a entirely different perspective on things when you're finished. All of us tend to exaggerate, underestimate, overestimate. It's human nature. Don't misjudge the need. Number three, don't concentrate on self-needs to the extent we ignore the needs of people around us. Don't concentrate on self-needs to the extent we ignore the needs of people around us. Philippians 2 verse 4. This is from the famous kenosis text from Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. Kenosis is a Greek word. Kenosis means a self-emptying, an emptying of oneself that frees someone from selfish concerns. Kenosis is selflessness. And according to that text, the Kenosis text, Jesus himself is the ultimate example of Kenosis. Notice Philippians 2 verse 4. Let each of you look out not only, and those are critical words, not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Yes, we are to look out for our own interest. 
We are to care for ourselves. We are to be responsible for ourselves and our actions. But we cannot stop at ourselves. According to this, we are to also consider others. Someone said the first thing a small infant does is to grab for something. Because our inbred human nature is essentially selfish. And as parents, we have to teach our children to share and teach our children to give. There's a modern phrase in our vocabulary called compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is a phrase some of the more affluent are using to describe this. I'm tired of these repeated calls to do good. One of those suffering from this compassion fatigue said, Why must my enjoyment of the good life be spoiled by reminders that much of humanity is starving and even many of our own neighbors are terribly poor? That's an attitude of compassion fatigue. That's a selfish attitude. And that's a sad commentary on the effect affluence has had on some people. Gratefully, not all of them. Some Christians seem to operate according to another form of this compassion fatigue called meism. The evangelical poster George Barna said that attending church in this nation has degenerated to a form of consumerism. We have been trained to be consumers. We're consumer driven. And so attending church is now more of a form of consumerism. For instance, of those adults that do attend church, one out of seven actually change churches each year. There aren't that many good churches. One out of seven change churches each year. Another one out of six adults that do attend church attend a handful of selected churches on a rotation basis. There is no commitment to a singular congregation. The reason there are these unfortunate statistics is because of this self-centered, what's-in-it-for-me consumerism attitude that some people have. That wasn't Nehemiah. He didn't say, well, what's in it for me if I go to Jerusalem? No, he was concerned about his people and that condition and that wall that had been torn down. The letter A, and I need to hurry, in this acronym SAD represents the word available. Available. Nehemiah made himself available to help meet that need. Nehemiah sensed this incredible need, but as we're going to see, Nehemiah made himself available to meet that need. Nehemiah didn't just announce after hearing this report, oh man, that is, that is so bad. That is, that's a serious need. That, that's, that has to happen now. Someone needs to go to Jerusalem and rebuild that wall. Someone needs to help those persecuted people. Someone needs to do that. Instead of suggesting that someone else return to Jerusalem, we're going to see that Nehemiah volunteered himself. Isaiah 6 verse 8. The famous prophet Isaiah said, Also, I hear the voice, voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Don't let us be confusing. Uh, us is, means the triune Godhead. God is one being that exists in three co-equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this is God in his triune Godhead form speaking here. Who will go for us? Notice, then I, Isaiah said, here am I, send me. In reading that, I didn't sense a reluctance from Isaiah in that response. Instead, I sense an anxiousness to volunteer. It's like some kid, you know, that, that wants to do something, is excited, and the teacher is asking for all the He goes, me, 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 send me, God, please send me. 
That's his attitude. If the prophet Isaiah were a part of our congregation, I guarantee he would come to me after a service at some juncture and say, Pastor, I want to serve. I'm here. I'm willing to do anything I can. Get me something to do for Jesus. That would be his attitude. Listen, I don't object to someone insisting that there's a serious problem that has to be addressed. Not at all. Because sometimes those problems exist and we need to be made aware of them. That is very important. But I'm somewhat frustrated at people that are always wanting to point out a need, always wanting to point out a problem, always wanting to point out what needs to be corrected, but then never volunteer themselves to help meet that need or contribute to the solution to that problem. John MacArthur said the church needs more contributors and not just critics. And I agree. To rephrase, rephrase the famous line from the late President Kennedy, ask not what this congregation can do for you, but ask instead what can you do for this congregation. Christian, find a problem and solve it. Find a hurt and heal it. Find a need and meet it. Don't just sit there on your blessed assurance and talk about it. Get up and do something. The letter D in the acronym SAD represents dependable. Nehemiah was dependable in doing all he could to fulfill his commitment to meeting that need. And the reason is this. Prior to this, Nehemiah had a proven track record, didn't he? Artaxerxes had trusted him enough to give him one of the most respected and responsible positions in the entire empire. He trusted his personal security to him because he was his cupbearer. Remember, cupbearer meant he was a butler combination bodyguard. And he had much credibility. He had been faithful, reliable, dependable. Artaxerxes knew that and gave him that position. Artaxerxes used Nehemiah in part because he was dependable. Another synonym for dependable is faithful. Someone said, our basic problem is not inability but inconsistency. And I agree. Because it seems that more and more people can't be counted on to be dependable. A famous Bible teacher once defined being dependable as this. Fulfilling what I agreed to do, even though it might require additional and unexpected sacrifice. Fulfilling what I agreed to do, even though it might require additional and unexpected sacrifice. Proverbs 20, verse 6. But who can find a faithful man. The question is, who can find a faithful man, a faithful woman, a faithful young adult, a faithful adolescent, a faithful, dependable, reliable person? That's an extremely relevant question. Now, don't misunderstand. Faithfulness doesn't mean 100% never miss and never not be able to do something we agreed to do. That's not faithfulness. There are legitimate exceptions. We all understand that. Numerous exceptions, of course. But faithfulness, being dependable, is becoming, less, is becoming more and more rare. Um, in closing, I, people sometimes ask me, what bugs you? Well, in one word, people. But um, people are the greatest blessing and sometimes the biggest burden. And one thing that bothers me that I have seen in t through my entire career, I've pastored seven churches in four states, three church starts and four church revitalizations, however you wish to phrase it, uh, this being the third. And one thing that bothers me to the point it actually grieves me, it's upsetting to me, is this. If I'm absent on a Sunday, and I'm 
And that's rare. If you are here, you understand I'm very committed to being faithful. God has assigned me a job. I take it seriously. I'm here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But if I'm not here and people find out that I'm scheduled to not be here, what do you think happens? The attendance that morning I'm absent is dramatically, dramatically lower than normal. It's this attitude. Pastor's not here. He's not going to be there. So I don't need to be there. That's upsetting to me. I am not special in any sense of the word. If someone looks up the word average in the dictionary, my picture is there. So I'm not special, but one thing I am, and I have been for four and a half decades, I am faithful. I am extremely faithful. But unusual absenteeism in my absence means I have absolutely failed in reproducing that faithfulness I have in the congregation I pastor. I have utterly failed. Otherwise, that sort of unusual, abnormal absenteeism wouldn't exist. Please understand something. If I am here, or if I am not here on Sunday morning, God is still here. God is never absent. God is never on vacation. God is never on a sabbatical. God never calls in sick. God is never still in bed because he was up last, late last night. No, if God's people are gathered here together in his name, then God himself is here. And people, he should be the reason we are here to worship him and not me. We need more sad Christians. People that are sensitive to needs. People that are available to help meet that need. And people that are dependable and faithful and can be counted on to do all that we commit ourselves to do to meet that need that God has brought to our attention. Let's bow our heads. Father, every one of us, including myself, we need to be sad. We need to exhibit these attributes that Nehemiah did. A sensitivity to needs and availability to meet those needs and then a dependability to fulfill our commitment to meeting those needs. We need that. Every one of us. We're all at different stages of life. I understand all that. I get it. And we all have different professions and careers and occupations and all of that. And I'm not here to, to stand in judgment over anyone because we, no one answers to me. No one ever will answer to me. We all will answer to you. So help us to remember that. Help us to be the men and the women that you've called us to be. Help us to be sad in that biblical sense of that acronym. Again, thank you for your goodness. Most of all, I thank you for your love and your patience with us because if I were you, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd be so patient. But you are, and we are all grateful. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Bless us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.